0: Courage and bravery is a thing that you practice because I can point to, oh man, I can point to so many times in my career where I've wanted to say the thing and I haven't said the thing and it still haunts me to this day.
1: Hi, I'm Paul. I'm Mark. And you're
2: listening to Troublemakers, a podcast about people who are agitators for good. Mark and I are partners in a business called Pixel Recess, where we believe in supporting those that want to
1: disrupt for good. Today, we're talking to Heather Infantry. Heather is the executive director of Generator and a strong voice in Atlanta for the black arts community.
2: We recorded this episode before uh, the passing of John Lewis, but in spirit, our motivation is much like his, to support and uplift those people out in the world who are causing good trouble.
1: So we thought it was fitting that in this first episode, we include the words of the great John Lewis himself. I heard about Rosa Parks. I heard the words of Martin Luther King Jr. on all radio. The action of Rosa Parks, the words and leadership of Martin Luther King Jr. inspired me to find a way to get in the way. And I got in trouble. Good trouble. Necessary trouble. Paul was an art major. My father was a theater professor. Um, So I grew up in the theater, uh, did a lot of theater. I was a classical musician for uh, for a minute, and so like the arts is core to us; it's part of our DNA. It is to everybody, right? But it definitely is to us. So tell us about your experience. Like you're a theater major, and what does the arts mean to you? What hasn't meant to you historically?
0: Yeah. So the arts, um, I think, as I've gotten older, has sort of been the center of my activism, but it started. As young as middle school, when I took my first drama class. And before taking that class, I think folks would have characterized me as a very shy person, which I think anyone that knows me now finds that hard to believe, but it was a very shy, kind of reserved person. And I just, I like, I remember so vividly, like that first drama class in seventh grade, and this notion of putting yourself into a character and playing a part. Was, it just opened up a whole world for me, and so um, by the time I got to high school, I was very fortunate that my parents had split up, which resulted in my mother and I moving back into the city. I grew up in Canada, and we were living in a, a suburb west of Toronto, and we ended up moving back into the city, and I ended up at this high school that had this phenomenal theater program it just had this great reputation for this very unique program that you had to audition to to be part of and it was for the entire five years of your time in high school and just an exceptional drama experience i had this like, very quirky, who I thought was a gay man, but you know, turned out he had a wife and kids, but just that very quirky theater kind of like affect. <laughs> and um, he was a rule follower. Mister. His name was Robert Beatty. He was a rule follower and a rule breaker, which I, I think I've modeled a lot of my life um, by his example. So he was very adamant that in our craft that we were, that we, that we showed up. That we were masterful in the things that we were doing, that we um, represented ourselves as part of a team and not an individual. But he also smoked in his office, which (laughs) was against school (laughs)
2: policy.
1: And he
0: would like, cuss at us like he would straight out use the f-word when we weren't out like selling tickets and meeting our quotas and that sort of thing so it was just this very interesting and then he also had library duty right so i would go into the library checking out books and i might be late returning a book and he would totally chastise me for returning these books late right because it was an indication of just like sort of like <laughs> my lack of caring for other people that might be interesting this, interesting these books so yeah, this real sort of like dichotomy of like follow the rules but don't follow the rules and i think you know i um in my life have followed the rules that i think are most convenient to me and, and <laughs> so there that goes isn't,
2: and it, isn't it the saying uh, you have to know the rules to be able to break the rules that's, it. that's right yeah so that's
0: probably it <laughs> um and i think where the activism part sort of came for me was also during that high school experience where in ninth grade in my homeroom English class, I sat next to a young woman who had become a really good friend during my time in high school who was Sunni Muslim. And on the very first day of grade nine, she asked me if I knew who Malcolm X was.
1: Hmm.
0: And I didn't. And that so began just this journey of self-discovery and black activism that, you know, was really rooted in an African-American like history and tradition. Right. And that started to um, intersect with what I was doing creatively, because it was a very white school, as you can imagine. Like Toronto, you know, we make up 3% of the population, very right. white school. And when it came time for my senior year within that theater program, we could have the option of doing like the class production, or you could do something on your own. And that was where I decided I was gonna do something on my own, and <laughs> I was gonna do Colored Museum by George C. Wolfe. And that's a very iconic. African-American um, centered piece of work and I remember there is a Negro spiritual in one of the uh, opening monologues that I actually performed and I had no idea um, the melody like huh. I, I didn't know what a Negro spiritual was I didn't know the melody this is before the internet so there wasn't a way and then I don't have sort of the peers or the mentors that I need to educate me on these things right I had no black teachers coming up in all of my years yeah. Um, and all my schooling in, in Toronto. And so it, it was years later before I, I understood what that was. But that, that's really the moment where like, theater and activism really um, started to merge for me. And it was that you know, theater was this through line to exploring my identity and giving me voice around issues that um, concerned me that were specific to the plight of, of black folks and, and black liberation.
1: Right. So like theater appeals to a lot of shy kids, right? To a lot of introverts. I mean, nobody'd ever believe most actors are, are introverts. And, and part of what we like um, is we tend to be empaths, right? Like part, part of it is the empathy piece, right? Like theater is an empathy machine. That's what it is. It f- forces you to live within the um, reality of, of somebody else.
0: Yeah. I think that line continues to blur for me. Um, because I still am, um, you know i still seek solitude for restoration <clears throat> and for thinking and there is a really big performative part of my personality and i and it, and it's only probably in the last 10 years that i would characterize it as a performance yeah. and i think it's because you know i've been married going on 21 years so my husband has had a lot of time to observe me mm-hmm. and i think it, it i think it was when he would say things like oh oh here she goes <laughs> Oh, 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 she's she's pulling it out. Here it comes. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. Like, is this a thing that I do? Apparently, this is a thing that I do. Um, And so that line gets really blurry. And I think the performance oftentimes, I think, gives people a misperception about who I am. Um, I think I come off as being aloof or like an agitator or uh, someone that is very... um, hardcore uh, not emotional doesn't have any vulnerabilities and that sort of thing so I think uh, in some ways the performative part of my personality has been a disservice particularly in these spaces where we're talking about things that are incredibly painful and devastatingly emotional Um, to walk into rooms and people can't see that within
1: I think when someone is as presents as confident as you do, right? Like that that's part of it, whether that's how much of that is real and how much of that is performative. But part of what it makes you wonder about is like, I I don't have any of this figured out, right? In some ways, I got nothing but questions. And it seems like I'm looking at somebody that doesn't question anything about what they believe, right? It presents like you've already figured it out sometimes, which is hard.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that I think that's the laziness on our part, right? It's that assumption that they have yeah. it all figured out because they're standing out and they're speaking out and I think um if we choose not to stand up and speak out it's because well we don't have these attributes that this other person has and we don't right. mm-hmm. like hey it's 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 a work in pro- pro- progress it's you know it requires a lot of effort and uh self-doubt but it's just easier to say hey that person's exceptional so so I'm right. not, a, so, right. so I, I, I can't do what they're doing because, you know, I haven't been endowed with those gifts and talents.
1: Look, we're doing this because we believe in <clears throat> good troublemaking. And frankly, I'm having a bit of a, you know, personal crisis, sort of in the fact that I haven't done it a, a whole lot. I have that similar kind of strange dichotomy in my background, too. My father was very much a rule follower, like both artistically and personally, like he re- he really... You know, he wouldn't jaywalk. So for him, it was a, like it was an integrity thing, right? Like he would the same thing about taking the books back. Like it was a almost an empathy thing. Like there's other people that right that care about these things and want them. And it's not so much about the rule; it's about what the rules after. And so my father liked to follow the rules for what the rules were after. And so I sort of absorbed a lot of that. And at the same time, like I'm a total pain in the neck inside of any organism. Like I can never work for anybody <laughs> because all I do is like break, break rules and look for all, the reason why all the rules don't make any sense <laughs> and, and suggest other things to do. And yet it hasn't on things that I would argue are most core to what I believe it has not affected my public discourse, <laughs> certainly with trusted friends and in closed circles, but publicly like anybody could see it on my Facebook page until recently it has not. So we want to talk about some of that troublemaking process and how you think through it and how you think through what to do and all of that. But the, the easiest way is to start with an example. So when did you first hear about the fact that the community foundation was going to do this grant, you know, this arts grant, uh, uh, granting of money related to, and they did relate it directly to COVID, right? Like that was part of it is that this is a hard time for the arts because of what's going on and we're going to make some grants.
0: Yeah. they, they made a round of grants uh, as part of a COVID relief funding effort. And then later on, they specified the arts and culture community for COVID relief funding. Okay. Separate and apart from that. And that came, you know, weeks after that first uh, round of applications or round of uh, distribution of grants. And so the interesting context for kind of how I... Received the information and then then responded to it was I had been part of advocacy efforts over the last I would say three or four years, largely in multiracial spaces, predominantly white, I would say, trying to figure out um, how we as an arts and culture community can better represent our needs you know Atlanta continues and Georgia continues to be one of the states and cities that you know, underfunds the arts and culture community, and it has such a, an adverse impact on our arts and culture ecosystem, right? And so we've been trying to figure that. Is it, you know, is it the the penny tax? Is it hotel tax? Like, what what's what's the way to do it? And in the process of trying to answer those questions and rally support, you know, we've had to contend that we're not a very connected sector, right? We don't really have relationships. We're all struggling in our own ways, and we have our head down. And so there have been so many efforts trying to make that work. And so with COVID, um, as as that presented itself, I was part of yet another effort uh, to try and figure that out. And it was being completely co-opted by the whole COVID mm-hmm. situation and trying to figure out like, okay, well, what do we do in the midst of this crisis that's having an impact on our sector? And it was in one of those conversations where it became abundantly clear to me, because I think one of the decisions was to put together a panel of legislators who are about to go into session to figure out this relief funding. And we wanted to make a case for why they needed to include arts. Then we had gotten some feedback that, you know, this isn't a good time to advocate for that because we're seeing cuts across the line. Let's just make sure we feed them some talking points um, for future. And I remember just the effort that ensued around government, right? This government action, which, In a lot of ways has never really served us in any kind of way and it's never really served black arts specifically and i just had this notion like you know i don't think my time is being well spent in this space and i think what would be more beneficial is if i created some black affinity space around the arts and it was also sort of on the heels of a conversation within that same group where yet again i was the only black person in the space but equity is important as expressed by everybody at the table, but it wasn't, we weren't seeing it in actual operation. Right. Right. And so I said, you know, we're giving lip service to this thing. Mm -hmm. So let me think about this in another, let me think about an affinity space. And within a couple of days, I saw the announcement from the community foundation that they had awarded $580,000 to 11 arts institutions. And as I always do, because I think about race all the time, is I went to look and see who the awardees were and what the amounts were. And when I looked through the 11 people on the list, it was blaringly obvious to me that there wasn't one black arts organization on the list. Mm -hmm. Probably a week or two prior, AT&T and WarnerMedia had made a round of gifts specific to the arts and culture community. It was probably about 19, five black arts organizations were on the list, the usual suspects. And maybe like one or two that were kind of like new emerging organizations. So um, I took to social media, not thinking anything of it. I was just <laughs> venting. Like that's, that's all it was. That, like, so, okay. Mm-hmm. So
1: this is the post I see. The supporter report did a thing, right? Where they yep. list Where they put a very big picture of a bunch of African-American children. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Dancing. (laughs) Dancing. And then below that list all the arts organizations that that received money. So what I see is on my feed from you, right? Not one Black arts organization was awarded a grant. So much for equity during a pandemic, disproportionately killing Black folks. Time to create our own space. Stay tuned. Now, you know that's not particularly confrontational. No. You're just pointing. Like it wasn't. You know. You're not going after. You're just saying. I can't believe it. But it went from there.
0: <laughs> yeah, it went <laughs> to from become, there.
1: To become in more my, and more. And
0: my caption was really uh, an affirmation for me about my recent epiphany about creating right. affinity okay. space it, ar- around this particular issue. It really was not about going after the community foundation and holding them accountable in any kind of way. And then the comments um, <laughs> ensued.
2: And so
1: do you expect that? Do you, do you, I mean, you hold a position of cultural power so do you expect when you post something like that that people are gonna it's gonna in, incite people to get involved like to get to become it's, a part
0: well you know what was interesting it wasn't so much that people responded um it was particular people responding okay and it was uh, particular people who quietly have supported my agitation in the past yeah but not publicly and this time, they did it publicly, and so that gave me pause. I mm-hmm. noted that. I was like, "Huh, that's that's interesting," but yet I still wasn't thinking anything of it. And then, you know, m- more comments uh, continued to come in into the next day. And that night, that was a Friday, and that night I got a text late in the evening from a white colleague who I would describe as someone who has who has this interesting influence right she's you know do you know people that are they're like connectors you don't yes. quite know how they make a living but they always seem to be in the yes. room and they know everybody right they collect right. they
2: collect people yes yeah, yeah. People. yes <laughs> so
0: this particular person um white woman reached out to me and you know apologized on behalf of her race essentially right. mm-hmm. and you, you know uh saw how trite the you know expressed how trite it is for me to even apologize. I get that, but I just, you know, feel hopeless in the situation, would love to do something. And I thought, hey, well, you know, if you want to do something, just, you know, like reach out to your people. Talk to Virginia Hepner. You know, she's quoted in the supporter report article. Talk to Alicia Phillip, the CEO of the foundation and Susan Grant, who's the board chair, like, like holla at your people. And she's like, okay, I will. And I thought, hmm, okay. So I woke up the next morning, it's on my mind, and I thought, well, let me reach out to Maria Saporta." And so I emailed her to just say, hey, you reported on, on this story and want to bring to your attention that there wasn't a black organization awarded in this round. What do you think? Well, not even what do you think about that? I think I, think I said something to the effect of it's worth following up and looking into. Right. To which she immediately replied that she didn't think I was correct, which which I took offense to because I'm like, you you don't think? Because (laughs) it's journalism. We deal in in facts, (laughs) not like things that we think about. It's like,
2: Uh
0: uh, so she says, I don't think that's actually true. And then she cited one of the organizations for, for whom that picture is connected to their work that yeah. served African-American children, right. but not a black organization. She cited them as an example. And then she went on to say, well, you know, while the creative project is not a black organization, they serve the neighborhoods of Vine City, Pittsburgh, and Mechanicsville. And then she goes on to say, well, I guess it all depends on what you define as a right. black organization. right? Which again is just completely like hysterical to me because – you know what a black neighborhood is, but all of a sudden kind of (laughs) unsure what a black organization is.
2: Yeah. And
0: then concludes her note by saying, well, they're going to do additional rounds and hopefully there'll be some more for other people. (sighs) I I was just like, "Mm." and I can't respond to that. Right. Because that would require me to explain so many things. And for the rest of the or to, you know, as an institution in Atlanta. Yeah, right? Sure. And she's been here, you know, forever. Um, so I was just completely befuddled. Like, this is not journalism. You know, we don't report on like opinions. And why are you coming in defense of the Community Foundation?
2: Yeah, right. why, yeah that why is, is interesting that, interesting Why is that the, the uh, immediate response? Right. What's your hold to the be so yeah,
0: defensive about, about, it. about it? Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> as, as that back and forth was happening, I got another text or email or Instagram something from someone, another white colleague who is so (laughs) apologetic for her people wanting to do something. And I said, and it happened to be the woman who's one of the co-founders of moving in the spirit. So the organization that was misrepresented as, as being black. And I was like, great, you know what you could do? You could talk to Maria Soporta because you know, I certainly wasn't going to explain it to her. And I sent it was Leah Mann, who's one of the co-founders. I sent her uh, the email thread and I said, you know, deal with your people. And she <laughs> did. And it was great because then she could, you know, as a representative of the organization, she could clarify that, that it is in fact not a black organization. And here's the problem with these grants going out and black folks not being represented. Great. And um, they had a little bit of back and forth and the thread continued to receive likes and comments to the point I think we got to like 113 plus comments at some point yeah so maria Saporta in her response it 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 ignited the flame for me um that was it because it it spoke to that kind of protection that happens you know to big institutions that there's no fault And again, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a pandemic, right? It's a serious crisis. And so, you know, I start spiraling into just thinking about that and what the comment of that. And then that's when sort of like the wheels start spinning for me to activate every single relationship and network and thinking that I have around addressing this in a very deliberate kind of way. And I would say, um you know Maria Saporta was the one that really set that huh. off for me.
1: huh
0: not to mention, I would also say, and then it was also the community foundation in that initial post yeah, they 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 head. commented
1: they commented on it pretty yeah. quick they and, did. and yeah. I mean i for so for me, that was an interesting inflection point as an outsider watching what you were doing was that initially right you didn't you hadn't said anything particularly objectionable or you know you weren't taking anybody on in fact you were saying we maybe maybe like we always do we got to do something for ourselves like that's all you said
0: yeah and
1: and yet there was enough there was enough concern that marketing needs to reach out to you and that's when you started to say oh all right okay like we want to have this conversation what is your process yeah like you decided you're gonna go let's go which seemed like a little moment of transition
0: yeah yeah I think um so that was Friday, Saturday Maria Saporta, then I then I posted in my story contents from that email from Maria Saporta. I made a subsequent post about it on Instagram and then by Monday or Tuesday I went in on LinkedIn and then Twitter and there were a couple of, you know, comments from the community foundation on all of those channels. And yeah, they they fanned the flame some more because they didn't. They didn't say anything of substance. They didn't deny. Right. They didn't deny it, but they also didn't take any ownership of it, and that just sort of reinforced the the ire around the whole issue. Um, and never reached out to me as they had said that they would do in their comments right. in public. They said they would. In public, they said that they would, and so that really lit the fire. And my immediate. First step was <laughs> who is the black arts community because i don't know i mean i know i know some of some of the folks i know some of the players but i don't know um i don't know them fully and so my first order of action was to compile a list like who are you and that turned into so how, how
1: did you do that because that list i've seen the list yeah there's that, that that excel spreadsheet that mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's, it's yeah, amazing. It's
0: about organizations invited yeah. me in the course of like a week or so to compile. And it was just, it was a matter of reaching out to the folks that I know around particular disciplines and saying like, who am I missing? Like, here's who I got. Who else do I right. need? And then I put that within um, the context of a survey um, because I had spent some time looking at the arts fund application. Right. So now I'm like, I'm starting right. to dig in. I'm pulling in like all my... <laughs> All my skills now, everything that I've done.
1: So I found it interesting, particularly in light of your comment a second ago, that you did put a definition in there. You didn't just list a bunch of organizations and say, you guys figure out what makes them black-led. Like, you put a definition. So why don't you go go over real quick, what was that definition to you? What makes it meaningful and real?
0: Well, it was the pushback about it, you know, it's serving predominantly black kids or that it's led by a black person, right? And neither of those things are explicitly what makes a black organization. And um, so I think the reason why I had to create the definition was then I was reluctant to do it. I'll I'll say that I was reluctant Mm -hmm. to create the definition because I know we all know what a black Mm -hmm. organization is. Like I know we know what a black organization is. There's no confusion about that. And in requiring that we have to name and define it, I felt was just another one of those slippery ways in which people are trying to evade an issue or always put the onus of naming, Hmm. uh, the onus of us having to name ourselves. Right. And what's really interesting about this is if you actually look up what a white organization is, the only thing that you'll pull up are white nationalist hate groups. (laughs) Even though most of our institutions are white.
1: Yeah, even though everything's (laughs) (laughs) white. Everything's white. Everything is built on, yeah.
0: It's everything. We don't have to define it, though. And the thing about black organizations that are self-declaring, that are interested in serving black people around black-centered narratives is that you have to declare that because white is neutral. It is the center. And so for folks to know that there is an offering that is other than that neutral, centered, white right. um, expression, you have to say as much, right? So HBCUs have to be called HBCUs right. so that you know that if you're looking for yourself, this is where you might find it. <clears throat> right. Um, I, I remember going through the exercise. I had a friend who just had a baby and while she was pregnant, you know, she had the shower and we were putting together, you know, presents and I wanted to um, adorn the the wrapping of the box with images of, of black babies. And I remember going online trying to look for images of black babies. And when I typed in babies, all I got were white babies. The only way that I can find images of black babies on the internet is if I type in black babies, yeah. because babies Thanks. in and of itself just won't get me there.
2: Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. And that's a story of data, which also supports yeah. a systemic problem. Yeah. I was going down, I was going down your similar rabbit hole, just as someone trying to be informed uh about why why is it that we like i don't understand why as an organization who's giving money i have to have some sort of definition of the organization beyond just what it does but what it represents in terms of how i'm giving money like it's immediately otherizing something like all i can think is that it's always been used and it's always been used so they can otherize somebody like you're i feel like they're putting definitions on you to then come up with reasons why they can't put you into something because like, well, you just listed all these things and we don't do that. Right. Like, uh, so.
0: And here's the trick that's happening now in this age of wokeness and our um, awareness around inequity. Right. So the community foundation is now focused on this, right. They have rolled out a new strategic plan for which the central theme and focus is equity. And when you look at the data that they are referencing to frame what they focus on, they're looking at the impacts on black community. Mm. So we are the community that has not, uh, you know, that's not thriving, right? According to the data,
1: right? Right,
0: right. We're the marginalized, disadvantaged, all, all, all of the terms that you want to use. But yet my white counterparts are being awarded and rewarded for the work that they're doing without any kind of addressing of how they meet or live up to these standards around equity. Right. right and by, sure. and, and by not having white organizations name themselves specifically as white, right? So we're a white organization. We're led by white people. Our stories are centered around whiteness. Right. Then the question begs, okay, well, our focus is on equity. And here's the community that we're particularly focused on. So how in this realm of whiteness do you get over here? And they're not asking that question. So they get rewarded when they make some sort of like, you know, they make, they, they pander to some sort of effort of some kind, whether it's just packaging their very white centered season plays for young black kids in their neighborhood without ever changing who the protagonist of the story is to reflect like who these kids are. And they get awarded like points for diversity work. Right. Or they hire like that one black person. And it's like, yeah, right. Hey, you're making, but here are organizations for whom not only are they representative of this community that you say is in dire need of help and is in crisis, but their work is all geared and focused on, elevating the voice of this community and telling the stories of this community um, at intersections that relate to things like housing, education, transit, all these other things that we're saying are critical um, uh, parts of, of, a, of, a, of a thriving, successful life. But you're not awarding these organizations. Like The disconnect is yeah. boringly obvious to me. Right particularly if you say that equity is what matters to you.
1: Right. So talk talk about equity a little bit versus include, because right, what they would say, I would think anybody would say that starts a process like this is we included everybody. Mm -hmm. Like we didn't exclude anybody. We were very inclusionary. Any, any organization, black organization, anybody can apply. It's a very inclusionary process. What's the difference between that and and equity?
0: Well, I think if we're speaking about the community foundation, they have said uh, explicitly, right in their language, that the, these are the systems that have produced this result and its impact on black community. They're not talking about white communities when they're talking about the devastation of black lives in that right. regard. They're talking about black communities. They're very explicit, right? And I think they talk a little bit about immigration. They talk a little bit about uh, Latinx communities, but there is a lot of data that they're citing around black community, right? So they're already lifting up equity, as I understand it, which is a, it's a prioritization, right? It's, a, it's an institution with finite resources. It can't solve every issue. So it has right. to prioritize where it's going to make its investments. And so they are saying um, that their investments are greatly needed um, among this community of people because of a legacy of systems and policies that have devastated and um, hindered the the progress and advancement of this community right Right. so that requires focus and attention um and when we try to conflate equity with inclusion and diversity then we dilute that work and um you know that's a problem and when we're talking about the black community it also means that we are not valuing the diversity that exists within that community, right? Because right within the Black community, we can represent the diaspora, we can represent uh, the the LGBTQIA community, we can be representing rural and urban. Like, there's just so much diversity. The the class distinctions within the Black community. I mean, that's a that's a huge tension point, I think, in a city like Atlanta that requires analysis and understanding. That the Community Foundation, you know. In the years that i've been following you know hasn't really devoted time and understanding to because it's always sort of diluted by this like everybody is welcome and you can't make significant impacts when you are um you know doing a little bit over here doing a little bit there right i mean you're they you know when i look at the data right i'm looking at the data like everybody else you are telling me that black people in the city of atlanta um, their mortality rate is 10 years less than that of their white counterpart. To me, that's a life or death situation. That's a crisis point. That requires immediate attention. And y'all are fucking around acting like you don't know what the truth is. And that is just, it's the it's, it's, it's kind of blatant, um, man, it's just, it's, it's, willful,
2: it's willful ignorance i mean i mean, I
0: mean yeah. it's, it's it's even more than that it's just yeah. um it's a spiteful hurtful
1: mm-hmm.
0: abusive uh wrong it's mm-hmm. it's wrong it's wrong yeah. in every sense <clears throat> of the
1: word but but uh like heather yes. like we're an institution We're responsible to our stakeholders. Like We have to be responsible funders. These are investments, really. They're community investments, but they're investments in a way, even though they're grants. And so we can't just give money to everybody because there has to be yield to that money. And so the way you figure out whether there'll be yield is you set up a criteria of what a responsible investment looks like. And that means things like, you need audited financials and you probably need some W-2s, maybe at least a leader that's W-2 to making a certain income. And those are just all res- responsible ways to make sure that we don't you know, waste this money, that we're not irresponsible to our stakeholders. And yet that ignores all of the systemic <laughs> background for why black-led organizations might not have as many audited financials and like all of the things that, that led them to a point where they were already disadvantaged in certain ways to not be able to meet those criteria, like that was all just ignored as if that didn't need to be dealt with or viewed or was part of the process. As if you wouldn't say, it looks like we're getting like lots of interest from, from black-led organizations. They don't tend to have audited financials. Maybe we need to do another grant it gives a bunch of money to black led organizations to hire cpas for them <laughs> so that they can start having and then you throw your hands up at the end and say well there's nothing we could do everyone applied um, that's a you know that's a hardcore equity versus inclusion
0: slippery it's, it's like it's slippery it's, it's platitudes and rhetoric and utter nonsense
1: yeah. all right so um, so i mean i felt like this was a good example like part of why this is a good example is that you lead an organization Yes. Right. Yeah, um, you, I mean, multiple, but generator. And frankly, an organization founded by a white guy who probably would like to get a grant from the Community Foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Does that enter your mind at all? Like I went to Wall Street right after, after, I, after I got out of school and they taught us, you don't talk about politics. You don't talk about religion because you don't want to offend anybody. Well, you know, that's BS. It's not that you don't want to offend anybody. You, you don't want to cost yourself any money that's what it's about. The reason I don't speak, this is where I have a hard time, <laughs> I might not get emotional. The, the reason I don't speak out is because I'm afraid somebody that might pay me money someday might see that and then not hire me, which makes me want to throw up about myself. <laughs> like, that's actually what's going on, you know, if I actually break it down. I might lose a client. Like, how, how ridiculous in the course of humanity and who I am and what I believe and what people need in this world, how Small and it's ridiculous. Well, you
2: know, what you'll that? be on your deathbed, and be like, that's "Boy,
1: right. I wish I hadn't." Right, and so and so, okay. but does but for you, does that enter into your mind at all? Do you think I maybe I need to not because maybe there'll be this cost somewhere else that's important and that's important too. That's a good thing. I'm trying to do. Is there any fear ever? Is there any what it might um, cost you one way or another?
0: Well, it's not so much what it will cost me. I mean, I think. I don't wanna lift up my voice if I can't actually affect change, right? So that's, that's the, the biggest risk that I'm taking is like, am I making this big stink? And at the end of the day, it's not gonna produce anything for anybody. That's, that's the biggest thing. But you know, while thinking about what I lose, I also think about what I will gain, right? Whether it's my self-respect or whether <laughs> it is the camaraderie of people that see what it is I'm doing. And that is of interest to them too. And because, of, because I'm standing on that kind of moral ground, they too want to make an investment in that because of what they believe. I think when we talk about this work, it's always about what we lose and it's never about what we gain. And I think that's what mm. makes it um, scary for a lot of people because it's always framed within loss. I mean, I'll, I'll be very clear. It was calculated for me the the play with the community foundation because i was then emboldened by what was happening in the streets you know following yeah. george floyd mm-hmm. right and so it was like oh shit like man what a time to be a black person right now i'm about to reap like every like bit of currency <laughs> out of this thing that i can yeah. and no white institution right now wants to be deemed a racist yeah so that creates an opening. Like th- that's not that's not even an opening. That's like, okay, we're not we're not just putting our foot in, we're about to bust this whole thing down. And that really helped to shape my thinking like with each day in trying to figure out like how we're going to turn this into some sort of like win for us. Right. With no delusion of any sort of long term like dismantling of the philanthropic system in Atlanta. Like right. that's <laughs> not your- <laughs>
1: right.
0: But, you know, there's this immediate thing that we need. And then there is this byproduct of this thing, right? Because at the end of the day, for me, it's not about the community foundation as much as it is about rallying these black arts and cultural institutions to work towards a common goal. And this fight, right, is, is unifying us in that kind of way. And my hope is that we begin to have conversations with each other. We begin to collaborate in different ways. And more importantly, that we begin to... Uh, ideate on models that will better serve the work that we are doing because I am certain that white philanthropy really can't with any kind of integrity support black liberation which is the focus of a lot of these black arts organizations those are those things are just you, you know opposites of each other and that we have spent so much of our energy and our time pandering to the um you know, the white gaze in this kind of way in order to support this work that we're doing. And I think our work has been compromised in a lot of ways because of it. And I think we have silenced ourselves in places where we really need to be much louder than we've been because of that. Right. And so if we can just, you know, embolden this sector to really latch on to this and see it as an opening um, then I think the, the the byproduct of that will be much bigger than the little tiny dollars the community All foundation right. has to anybody in arts and culture.
1: Do you think this kind of activity is brave? Do you feel like you're brave? Do you feel like it takes courage?
0: Yeah, I do. I do. Um, and I think courage and bravery is a thing that you practice because I can point to, Oh man, I can point to so many times in my career where I've wanted to say the thing and I haven't said the thing, and it still haunts me to this day. Um, So I think there is like enough of that that happens where you get to a point where it's like, well, we'll know more. I mean, I'm 44 years old, right? So I've I've had some time to to deal with some things, Um, and I think you know bravery can can kick you in the ass too, right? I think it can I think it can backfire on you. Um, but there's great learning in that.
1: Yeah. Great yeah my, my favorite definition, I guess, of courage was always that it's not, you don't know, tell yourself that the, that the dangers aren't real. I mean, that's stupid. That's psychotic. The dangers are real. Like there are potential consequences. And that real courage is doing the right thing when you know the consequences, when you know it's not going to work out. Like what's so powerful about a story? Where they charge into battle at the end because it's the right thing to do, and you know they can't win. Yeah. Is that like that's that's courage is that yeah. I know it's not going to end good for me, but it's the right thing to do.
0: Yeah. It remains to be seen what the Community Foundation is going to do. I mean, yeah. I'm waiting. Have
1: they made more grants?
0: No, not yet. We're waiting to see um, what they'll do with this next round. And I've been, you know. Yeah. If to i remember
2: writing the letter didn't they say that they would address it in their next round which i'm like that's a convenient push off of a
0: mm-hmm. hof- yeah. hopefully
2: they do something about it but yeah
0: everyone says hopefully it's so fast that's what they say hopefully everyone's like i, I love when people like hopefully they'll do something and it's like well no it's not hopefully it's like you do better. something or you don't yeah it's, you better because there will be a response
1: <laughs> that is what everybody says don't. that's what they say
0: Right. Hopefully yeah, we'll yeah. be
1: able to do something. Yeah. Like we're the ones with all the power and hopefully we'll be able to use yeah, no, it.
0: No, this is like, I'm very adamant that this is not a hopeful moment. This is a moment of you do the thing that we require you to do or you don't. And then if you don't, there are consequences for not right. doing it. Right. Let's be, let's be clear. Like this is not a moment of let's have the conversation and let's help you to become aware that's what we've been doing all of these years.
2: Yeah. And yeah.
0: That, doesn't, that doesn't work. Your timeline doesn't work for us. Yeah. And so we've got to have some agency over the timeline and uh, begin to assert um, some repercussions.
2: It seems like their mindset is the hopeful. is like, well, hopefully yeah. we can figure out a way that we don't get hurt Right. By making some concessions.
0: Hmm. Which is unfortunate which is- because they just make it harder on themselves, right? But I think for my white counterparts, you, you only need to look at the time that you're in and reference times like this decades ago right if we think about the segregationists in the south who are trying Mm -hmm. to hold out on integration
2: right yes there's
0: there's a shift in our country that's happening right and it's either you're gonna you're gonna move along with the shift and try and just get absorbed in the momentum and hope you live to tell the tale or you're a dinosaur and you will be vilified yeah so it's a survival right it's some of it is just survival so it's like what kind of white person do you want to be at the end of the day yeah um So hurry up and get yourself some black. <laughs> friends.
1: That's right. I'm I'm working on yeah. it. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, I can count you as my one. Uh, so, uh, anything you want to say about generator?
0: I mean, I think the benefit for me with regards to generator is that, um, you know, this kind of agitation is sort of central mm-hmm. to the mission, which is why we are trying to create a business model that isn't dependent upon traditional philanthropy because. We can't have any sort of censorship around the ideas and particularly around the callouts that may be, be required in galvanizing community around various initiatives or grassroots efforts, right? Like it's, it's really important to protect the integrity of people saying the thing. Plus, we also need to foster a culture where institutions you know aren't trying to silence people like they've got to recognize that the outside agitation is so incredibly necessary to helping them to become better at what they do i mean i would hope that they actually want to live out these values that they espouse that it's not just lip service that, that they want to feel good at the end of the day that they're making an impact and that outside voice can kind of hold you to that and i appreciate and recognize that within organizations you have to make compromises there's so many folks that you have to serve Um, but we've got to get as close to perfect as we can and it's a it's an inside outside game like I realize that that's a that's a relationship that works together when we recognize and respect each other for the roles that they play Um, and you know generator and its mission like that's that's what we recognize
2: I'm interested to see where it goes with yeah me too what you're what we what you've started for a very good reason I'm very curious to see where it goes and Please let us know if there's anything we can do to help uh amplify make magnify
1: anything that you're
2: working on yeah, yeah it will. sounds
1: like this is a i mean I thought it was just a post you know about a topic, but it sounds like for you turn, this, turn is, this is a bit of a calling like that's gonna that you're gonna be involved in this discussion around this topic in one way or another in a substantial way going forward
0: yeah, I think so
1: <laughs>
0: I think this is a opening to really examining uh, a history of philanthropic redlining that has, um, you know, prevented black institutions from addressing the needs of their community.
2: Thank you so much for listening to our show. Please tell all of your friends. uh, This fine podcast is in all of the best publishers of podcasts. Uh, No exclusivity here. We're open to everyone.
1: So we're doing something a little different with this podcast. We have decided that we will not pick our guests.
2: No, we thought it was best for our guests to find the voices that needed to be amplified.
1: Heather has selected someone, so join us next time to find out who it was.